From St. Petersburg and Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia, I'm Lily. And I'm Smith. That was fast. Did you see how fast I did it? It was like a lightning mm-hmm. intro. <laughs> what are we, what's today's topic? We're speaking with a very special guest, Yulia Gorbunova, who is a researcher uh, in the Europe and Central Asia Division of Human Rights Watch. We're talking about a report on domestic violence in Russia. Right, that she wrote, uh, that came out at the beginning of November. That she researched and wrote. Okay. Yulia, do you want to just start by introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Yulia Gorbunova, and I'm Russia researcher at Human Rights Watch. Yeah, and we're interviewing you today because you wrote this report. How, how long has it been now? Like about two months ago, published? Yeah, it was published in um, early November. Okay. Uh, it's entitled, I Could Kill You and No One Would Stop Me, Weak State Response to Domestic Violence in Russia. Okay, so I think a, a good place to start is to just uh, talk about what the decriminalization of domestic violence in Russia means uh, from a legislative standpoint. So could you just walk us through that timeline? Sure. Um, So basically, when uh, we say that domestic violence was decriminalized in Russia in 2017, uh, what that refers to is um, a very worrying step that the government took in February 2017, uh, which effectively resulted in protections for um, victims of domestic violence that existed becoming even narrower and even weaker than they were before. From a legislative viewpoint, basically, decriminalization meant that first offense of what's called family battery, uh, a first offense of family violence that did not cause significant harm to health, uh, requiring hospital treatment, became decriminalized. So basically, um, Violence that leads to serious injuries like broken bones or concussion remain criminalized, but uh, anything less than that uh, became uh, a non-criminal offense. Um, That law, um, that new law applies to um, violence against any family member, including women and children. And here I have to, you know, make a um, sort of little stop just to provide some context uh, and explain that domestic violence survivors were never really effectively protected in Russia. You know, the law enforcement, judicial uh, system, social system simply did not protect or support domestic violence victims, even if they faced um, and when they faced severe violence. But uh, decriminalization made things a lot worse. So it was definitely you know, a step in a wrong direction for a country like Russia, where domestic violence has very high prevalence. And it was a very, very disheartening moment for, you know, for activists that fought to combat domestic violence and, you know, for people who also 
um, faced it in their lives. So, you know, it basically was perceived by many as, um, you know, basically the government saying that it gives a green light to violence within family. Like the government was saying, it's okay to, to beat your wife. And basically that new legislation that we uh, talked so much about and uh, that I've written a report about basically created a situation where abusers, perpetrators of domestic violence, could get away with uh, nothing more than a slap on the wrist. Uh, and it led to fairly um, serious consequences. And it continues to cause a lot of harm to, to domestic violence survivors in Russia. And, and like I said, you know, there are already severe barriers to justice in Russia for domestic violence victims. And the system is stacked against them, basically, from the first step to the last. You know, there's no law on domestic violence in Russia. There's no definition of domestic violence. The police does not work effectively, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I was curious about this kind of distinction that Russian law doesn't uh, define domestic violence separately from other forms of violence what why is that significant well um that is actually a crucial point um because you know russia does not only uh not only russia does not have a separate law on domestic violence but it doesn't also separately define domestic violence it's not a criminal offense it's not any kind of offense because it, there is no definition in uh, national legislation of what domestic violence is so what that means in practice is that domestic violence isn't seen as any different than, you know, an assault on the street by a stranger. And it's actually taken less seriously um, than public assault, because at least when it's public, then there's a, you know, high chance that the police will inter interfere, uh, intervene and, 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 and stop it. Whereas when it happens behind closed doors, there's very, very little chance of that um, happening. And that's, you know, that's exactly where our legislators are incredibly wrong. And that's exactly where we have this huge gap um, that leads to so many women in Russia being, you know, maimed and uh, sometimes killed every year due to domestic violence is the fact that domestic violence is very different from violence perpetrated by a stranger. It has, you know, very specific features. It's described in international treaties for that reason, because it has, it's a, it's a very, um, you know, it has very specific characteristics that make it different from any other type of violence that could be codified in national legislation. And those features include things like you know, it being cyclical. So it usually repeats um, in time. It has a very dangerous tendency to very quickly escalate. And it may start with a slap, but then it can quickly become a lot worse. And another thing that makes it different is that this sort of situation of dependency, which so frequently accompanies it, because victims and survivors of domestic violence, they often live together with perpetrators. They are often economically dependent on them. They Sometimes they have children together and they very often have nowhere to go. Um, and domestic violence is a very latent crime everywhere, uh, which means it's, you know, universally underreported um, women who statistically suffer from domestic violence more uh, than men and children. They usually don't report it due to stigma, due to fear, um, sometimes it takes years for uh, women to come forward uh, to report it. And when they do, there has to be a system in place to support them. So, you know, those are aspects of domestic violence that 
make it a lot more dangerous than an isolated, very different than an isolated assault or battery. Um, and it really needs to be treated as such uh, in national legislation. You mentioned, um, I just wanted to get a little bit more specific about the types of like punishment or something that somebody could get uh, for what you said is like a slap on the wrist, this like the result of the decriminalization. Um, as I understood, it's like these are, that can be an administrative offense that's something like a fine or something. Could you give a few more details of like what exactly that looks like? And, and also just like, what is that, that, that legal move from public to private? Like what's so problematic about that? Oh, sure. Uh, okay. So this, this is actually quite a, quite a big question. So let's start by saying that, uh, you know, roughly only 3% of all domestic violence cases ever make it to court in Russia, according mm-hmm. to estimates by uh, lawyers who work in domestic violence cases, by activists um, that, that have been working on this issue for, for many years. And basically, you know, like I said, the, the system is really stacked against uh, domestic violence survivors when they do want to take their abuser to court. When we're talking about administrative cases, um, which what a lot of uh, cases of domestic violence became um, classified as after decriminalization, the penalties are significantly reduced from what it used to be. So when it was a criminal offense, there was, first of all, a criminal record, uh, which is you know very strong deterrent <laughs> for for people who don't want to end up with a criminal record. And that's, you know, one of the main functions of uh, criminal uh, uh, criminal penalties that, you you know, you can have a criminal record which will make your life a lot more difficult. Uh, in addition to that, um, you know, fine was also an, an option uh, for penalty. Uh, and uh, also uh, some time in jail um, was uh, part of the sanction for certain types of, of violence that resulted in certain type of injuries, basically. So uh, to simplify it all, after decriminalization, there's a very high chance that uh, a woman has been battered by her partner or husband who tries to get assistance from the police will either be told that her injuries are not sufficient and serious enough to initiate a criminal case uh, and will be sent into administrative proceedings. Uh, and as a result of those administrative proceedings, the standard penalty is a 5,000 ruble fine. That's roughly, I think, $79, if I'm not mistaken. And because the statute of limitation for uh, administrative offenses uh, is a year, basically, you know, if a year passes, then, you know, the, the, the abuser can, uh, can go on with, with beating the woman. And the penalty is equal to penalty that is, um, for instance, is used for offenses such as smoking where it's prohibited or parking in, a, in, mm. a, in the wrong place. So it just creates this perception. Um, and, you know, many, um, uh, you know, I've interviewed a number of people for, uh, for the report and, you know, they, they all said that there's a, this sort of newly, <laughs> newly discovered um, idea that uh, abusive men in Russia uh, obtained is that they, you know, they, it, nothing will be done to them if they, if they uh, beat their partner. Uh, and the worst that can happen is the same as what you get for parking your car in, a, in the wrong place. And that obviously is incredibly um, 
has a, it has quite a strong impact on the spike in domestic violence that we've been seeing. Right. You, yeah, you and your team did a lot of interviews with um, a bunch of different people, 27, I believe, of whom were survivors of domestic violence. And so for the listeners, like this report is a kind of weaving of uh, the context, the legal context, um, and then also these stories from specific women. And I, I mean, it's infuriating to read. And so much of the time that I was reading it, um, especially in like police responses to women where women would be in a situation where their husband or partner was attacking them or beating them and they would call the police and the police would kind of like either show up and like shrug their shoulders or they would be sympathetic but they would suggest that the the woman not provoke her husband so much or they would talk to the husband as if that was going to do anything and it's all kind of under this banner of traditional values which was like a phrase that was used a lot in the rhetoric of the decriminalization of uh, domestic violence so could you talk a little bit about that role of tradition quote traditional values Sure. Um, look, I mean, Russian politics, um, Russian social processes as a result uh, have been dominated by, um, you know, conservative trend for a number of years now. Uh, and that's been strengthening and increasing uh, that trend since uh, Vladimir Putin returned to power in 2012. Uh, and, you know, it's a very clear sort of strategic almost uh, choice that Russian authorities have made in taking that traditional course, uh, you know, because it, their goal is to send a very clear message uh, to the world, to the West, <laughs> that Russia is, you know, following its unique path. It's different from the West. Russia's present and future is all about traditional values, strong family, you know, faith and religion. Um, unfortunately, you know, Russia is not unique in that, um, in, in, in sort of uh, trying to uh, use traditional values as this, um, you know, there, there, there are many ways in which uh, idea of traditional values can be used. And unfortunately, in, in Russia's case, as in many other countries' cases, that message of traditional values frequently translates into completely non-human rights-friendly messages, messages of homophobia, state and church uh, merging effectively, uh, state persecuting other religious uh, groups and religious minorities. And in Russia's case, the traditional values rhetoric uh, in relation to domestic violence was very harmful because with that rhetoric, um, when it sort of uh, became stronger, it also revitalized and sort of normalized stereotypes uh, about domestic violence that were already quite prevalent in Russian society, but perhaps, uh, you know, dormant in the 90s. Uh, and Russia is, you know, it's a very conservative, patriarchal country. So there's very little surprise that there are very deeply ingrained attitudes of male dominance, uh, you know, men having more important role, or women having to, you know, bear difficulties in the family, keeping it quiet, uh, whatever problems they might have, including violence for the sake of their children, things like that. You know, all these attitudes uh, about it 
violence in the family being women's own fault, that they provoked violence, they should tolerate violence for the sake of their children, etc., etc. So those perceptions are, you know, common and they're widely spread in Russia. But unfortunately, when, you know, traditional values rhetoric in that context and with that, uh, with those implications, when it's voiced by, you know, influential people, by especially by government officials, you know, which is what happened in February 2017 and in, you know, the period of time leading up to that when decriminalization was discussed uh, very actively in parliament, in public sphere, uh, you know, there are a lot of discussions. Uh, it was a very big topic in Russia at the time. But, you know, and it sent this message that beating your wife or your partner is not only allowed, but it's also somehow a traditional value, you know, and it's really shameful. It's incredibly wrong because, um, you know, it's if it flips the issue completely upside down because the state should protect the victims and not the abusers. Uh, and, you know, violence within family is not a manifestation of any traditional value. And, you know, just to give you an example to to kind of show that I'm not exaggerating, <laughs> there was this um, a member of parliament called Helena Mizulina, who very active, is basically the, you know, the force behind decriminalization of domestic violence. And when she argued for decriminalization, she said, you know, well, she, she, she talked all this nonsense about Russian families being strong and women, you know, have a, this role of keeping they in keeping their men happy and whatever cooking and things like that but she also said um you know it's basically a direct quote uh she said even when a man beats his wife it's not as bad as when a woman humiliates a man or her husband you know and this quote really this quote really says it all because you know it's it's of course incredibly ridiculous you know to 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 us but it's also very dangerous because like I said in the beginning, it's basically, you know, it's basically a, a message to, to abusers, violent, uh, violent, dangerous people uh, from the government or from parliament saying, you know what, it's fine to, be, to beat your wife and she should be quiet and tolerate it, uh, you know, because you're a man and you're allowed. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly... Um, it's it's insane that it's happening um, in the 21st century, and it's insane that it's um, not just some kind of isolated, crazy people saying that, but it's basically you know state-sanctioned uh, policy. That's it's it it is it is maddening. Yeah, it seems it's really uh, like insane to me how successful they were at essentially equating traditional values with domestic violence and like that that was successful somehow um is it I don't know it's really scary and horrible and yeah yeah I mean I, I have to say that you know public perceptions are shifting somewhat in Russia but it's still the side of viewing um you know violence within family as sort of normal part of life and viewing gender-based violence as a normal part of life. And, you know, it's it's very harmful, you know, if we're talking about domestic violence, it's very harmful for, for victims of domestic violence because, you know, the perceptions are shared by police because, you know, police, police, they do what they... Uh, what they're taught to do, uh, and they, 
in, you know, when I was doing research for this report, I was just uh, blown away by the stories that victims told me how police, you know, they would treat them with scorn, with hostility, with distrust. They would say, you know, there's no way that this happened. Um, you know, a woman would call a police officer uh, and he would arrive at her flat and she's, you know, she's bleeding and bruised. And he says, well, let me talk to your husband. And then he would go to the kitchen, close the door. And then a minute later, a woman would hear them laughing together. And then he would walk out and say, hey, you know, um, you, you just have to make up, um, you know, to reconcile. And, you know, there, there's a whole range of misconceptions that uh, result in women being mad with that, not just from the police, but also from, you know, from their surroundings, from their family members, from friends, sometimes even social workers, um, you know, and shelters, especially government-run shelters, you know, who... Again, when I was interviewing uh, staff from government-run shelters in Russia, they sometimes would pride themselves on, you know, reuniting families. And that sort of would send a chill, you know, <laughs> up my spine because I would think, well, what, yeah. does that, what does that actually involve that they would reunite a family? And um, that brings, you know, of course, it, you know, puts a huge question about safety of women whose families they, you know, saved, quote-unquote. Um, and this one example that comes to my mind always is um, example of this woman who was severely beaten for years by her husband. And um, at some point he, uh, I think he broke her jaw and he, you know, traumatized her children and she was hiding from him. And then she finally went to and sought help from a shelter and she sought psychological help. And the psychologist basically told her to you know, to work on her own issues. And she and she was telling me all these, you know, horrifying details of what she went through. And I could see that she was upset and she was beginning to shake. And I said, look, maybe we should stop now. And, you know, I don't want you to, to um, I didn't want to re-traumatize her. So I suggested we stop mm -hmm. the interview. And she said, well, actually, yes, I have to go home because my husband is waiting for me. And I was completely mm -hmm. shocked and, and said, so, oh, do you mean, there's the same the same guy you were just telling me about and she said well yes you know we 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 reconciled and you know I, I'm working very hard not to provoke him um, mm -hmm. and that's you know that's that's basically the what it, it's not that she's not brave it's not that she's not uh, strong it's just the level of public awareness and that um, atmosphere that is you know in which these women have to fight their battles it's 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 public perception it's 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 everything yeah yeah this i mean that concept of being like having to be also just like quiet about it and i mean and or not knowing where to go or there's just like so many issues with that like particularly are public perception related um you know let alone the legal situation it's like <laughs> just the concept that you know that like this is a thing in general, that it happens, that it's bad, that you should be able to get away from it. It's just like that basic principle, you know? Exactly. And I mean, if we, even if we, uh, you know, you mentioned having nowhere to go. So um, we, you know, if we talk about number of shelters, a shelter is a place where a woman in state of crisis 
should be able to run to. And there are you know, very specific standards on the number of those shelters, the number of shelter beds that should, be, you know, should exist and operate in the country, the Council of Europe standards. And according to the Council of Europe standards, there should be at least 14,000 shelter beds um, in, in Russia, you know, according to Russia's population. And we have less than 2,000 shelter beds. And Moscow has fewer than 150 shelter beds, and the population is over 12 million. So, I mean, it's, um, it's, quite, uh, it's quite striking uh, how it, there are very, very few options for, for women. And that's why they often return to their abusers, because they, they literally have nowhere to go. Another huge issue is the fact that Russian law does not um, have protection orders, uh, uh, restraining orders, mm-hmm. as they're known in the States. So, um, you know, that that is a very specific uh, measure that helps to save lives uh, in the immediate term. So if a woman is in danger, especially if she comes forward and tries to complain, tries to call the police, that usually infuriates the abuser and uh, she needs to be protected. So, you know, if she is in Moscow, then she at least has some options. There are, you know, more shelters, there are more awareness, and more NGOs working on this issue. If she is somewhere in the village in the Urals, uh, she does not have any options uh, because the police will not listen to her. There is no shelter and the police will not issue a protection order to make sure that the abuser uh, is not allowed to approach her uh, until she's, you know, figuring it out or, you know, taking her case to court or, or whatever, starting criminal investigation. So they, they're literally, you know, there are literally no options for them but to, to run as far as they can and some, sometimes they do or to go back, you know, hide for a few days at a friend's place and then go back. And when they return, usually violence, you know, it picks right back up. Um, it's, it, and, 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 and like I mentioned in, in, uh, in the beginning, it's never, uh, you know, very rarely it, it stays the level of, you know, slaps or the guy pushing her or, you know, lightly hitting her. It usually escalates uh, and escalates to very dangerous, very dangerous levels. I'm, I was wondering... If we could just like step out a little bit um, and get a slightly bigger picture. So the rate that you have in the report for women in Russia who have experienced violence at the hands of their husbands or partners at some point during their lives is one in five, which is quite large. Um, do you have do you have numbers for comparison from other like from Western Europe or from Somewhere else in the world, right? Um, well, Russia is actually not very different. Uh, you know, if we take official numbers, so we say a one in five. Uh, that's according to uh, the last sort of detailed study, which was conducted by the Russian authorities, and it was done in two thousand and eleven. And so, according to that study, it's not very different from other countries, uh, including countries in Western Europe, but. Russia is different in that it has very little reliable statistics. So statistical data that we have, it's very fragmented uh, and it's very difficult to make any you know, reliable conclusions or any assessments based on it. 
you know, we know it's latent crime. It's latent crime everywhere. Women do not report it or, you know, they're afraid to report it. They don't report for other reasons or it's just, it's difficult for them to report it. Like in France, for instance, it was difficult for them to report it and then they changed the rules to make it easier. Uh, that's just to say that it exists, the problem with reporting exists in, in, in many, in all countries, basically. But also in most European countries, you can find, you know, court records uh, and you can see number of sentences for criminal acts uh, of domestic violence in certain regions, certain municipality, you know, in given months. Uh, but in Russia, there's no such thing. Right, because there's no law specifically. There is no law. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. There's no definition. So, you know, if you have, you know, a certain number of murders uh, committed in 2016, so you have court statistics where there are sentences. This is the number of sentences for murders, you know, Article 105 of the Criminal Code. But there is nowhere, nowhere in that statistics is there data on how many of those murders were actually perpetrated as domestic violence uh, because there's no category in the law. So we cannot make any clear uh, assessment. We cannot, we cannot make any, draw any conclusions from that uh, information unless somebody has time to kind of sift through all court records and look through each you know, case uh, of uh, where you know, harm to health was caused or you know, serious injuries or uh, battery and you know, figure out how many of those um, in a given year were committed against a family member. I mean, that's that's impossible. Uh, and then on the other hand, we have statistics, um, that's court statistics. We also have uh, statistics by the Ministry of Interior, and that statistics basically tells you how many violent crimes were committed against a family member in you know, 2014, 2015, 2016. It's great. But... That statistics does not include all the instances where women would come to the police, but the police would uh, refuse to start criminal investigation. That happens all the time. And after uh, decriminalization, that became even more frequent because now police have incentive to not start criminal and they have actually, you know, a lawful right basically to not initiate criminal cases, even if uh, harm to health is obviously severe. So I had cases where women had severe concussions, where they spent two, one woman spent two months in a hospital uh, with a broken nose. Uh, and a severe concussion, and police told her that her injuries were not serious enough for a criminal investigation, so it should be an administrative case. So all this, you know, is really, it makes, like this available statistic makes it literally impossible to, to understand the real number of domestic violence crimes and to make any kind of assessments about, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, becoming more severe, um, you know, we can we can say it's increasing, uh, for example, due to the fact that there, after decriminalization, there are more penalties for battery under administrative code. It basically doubled since decriminalization. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not really we, we can't really back it up with 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 with, with real numbers uh, of every aspect of domestic violence that that we need to to track. And there has to be, I mean, there has to be a, a, a law in domestic violence. There has to be a definition. I mean, I don't know any other country in the post-Soviet space uh, except for Uzbekistan that does not have a domestic violence law. Russia and Uzbekistan are the only two countries left uh, who don't have a definition even of domestic violence. And if you talk about 
you know, international uh, treaties, then Russia and Azerbaijan are the only two members of the Council of Europe who haven't ratified uh, the Istanbul Convention. So Russia is, in, you know, not in great company, and it's uh, it's it's a quite dire situation that needs to be addressed quickly. What is the Istanbul Convention? Istanbul Convention is a uh, it's an international treaty. Uh, it's a Council of Europe treaty. It's called the Convention on uh, Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence. Um, the reason why it's called Istanbul Convention is because it was um, it originated in Istanbul in 2011, and it's really uh, uh, it's the most comprehensive treaty on domestic violence there is. It defines uh, domestic violence. It defines actually a broad spectrum of violence against women, including physical, psychological, sexual, economic, and you know it, it's it's a treaty that requires like you know any other treaty. It requires state parties who joined it to work to change their attitudes and practices domestically. And Russia is, yes, like I said, Russia is the only one of two um, Council of Europe member states that has neither signed nor ratified uh, this treaty. Has the Russian government given any reason why they haven't participated in it? Yeah, they've... um, I mean, uh, Russia's participated in the discussions... uh, sort of toyed with the idea of uh, signing the convention in 2008. Uh, but then they expressed, as far as I remember, they, were, they had some reservations about uh, gender-based asylum claims uh, because, it, like I said, it's not just about domestic violence. It includes other, other um, types of violence against women. It's difficult to say why Russia has been, what the real reason is why Russia has been so stubborn in joining this convention, uh, because even High Commission of Human Rights uh, in Russia, which is, you know, a state official still, even though it has human rights in the title, but it's still very much aligned with the the government in Russia, uh, she spoke in favor of ratifying the convention. Uh, and she said that she saw no um, danger, I think, or obstacles in joining you know, Council of Europe on that issue. But again, Russia's relations with the Council of Europe have been deteriorating so quickly that we're kind of losing hope that there will be joining any, uh, Russia will be joining any initiative, uh, initiatives anytime soon. But it's definitely, it's it's the most comprehensive treaty. It's basically a groundbreaking treaty on um, violence against women uh, and protections for women uh, and it's it's a great shame. It's great shame that uh, Russia hasn't joined this convention. Uh, yeah, I want to. You kind of mentioned like Russia's deteriorating relationship with the, with European countries, and I want to talk about the what the role of anti-Western sentiment amongst Russian legislators is, and like it, it, the role in um, kind of negatively impacting domestic violence law. So. Anti-Western sentiment, uh, it goes really hand in hand with traditional values rhetoric. And, you know, in addition to things that I mentioned earlier, like, you know, revitalizing old stereotypes and creating stigma that prevents people from coming forward when they uh, face domestic violence at home, uh, the anti-Western hysteria also had very 
you know, it had a very negative impact on um, work of NGOs in Russia, non-governmental groups that also work in the area of hum- of women's rights, but, you know, not only women's rights, human rights in general. Uh, so basically the situation now is that groups that work on LGBT rights, groups that work on environment, women's rights, children's rights sometimes uh, in Russia, they are often portrayed as agents of the West, you know, as foreign agents. That's a term that was introduced in uh, 2012 by a very unfortunate piece of legislation, which basically um, said that if a Russian group is receiving foreign funding, you know, even a small portion of foreign funding, and is involved in political activity, which is defined so broadly that pretty much any activity can fall under that category. So in that case, you know, they are foreign agents. And in Russian uh, context, in, um, it's it's a very negative term, basically, you know, it basically means a spy or a traitor. Uh, and so it's, 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 it's incredibly depressing because, you know, these groups, they are actually working to fill those gaps that the government is not capable of or willing of filling so for example you know if we uh if we're talking about domestic violence the leading group on domestic violence uh fighting against domestic violence in russia is a center called anna center so it's a leading center that's been helping women who suffered from uh domestic violence and gender-based violence you know for decades now and in 2014 this group had been declared foreign agent they're still working, but it made their life a lot more difficult because, it, you know, it's about public trust. It's about, you know, government wanting to, uh, not wanting to really have anything to do with them. And, you know, it, this legislation, foreign agents basically forced a number of groups in Russia to shut down. The fact that their financial situation so, yeah, I mean, anti-Western hysteria manifests itself in laws and in policies that are incredibly detrimental to civil society in Russia, including groups that work on domestic violence. You, you had mentioned that um, the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Russia had spoken in favor of ratifying the Istanbul, Con- of Russia ratifying the Istanbul Convention. And I'm just, I'm wondering if you can point to other, like, specific examples of kind of voices of reason in within the government that show that there's some kind of effort right now to uh, either reverse the effects of 2017 or kind of just improve on the situation uh, in any way like that you have there was a bunch of recommendations in the study that you published Um, who yeah who who are some of those people well, um, or is there no more? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, uh, I think that, uh, well, we were actually quite surprised by the fact that we did find some understanding uh, the level of uh, cabinet of ministers, uh, which we did not expect to find. Uh, you know, and there are, there are people in the government, in the ministries that uh, are aware and that agree that the domestic violence situation with domestic violence in Russia is horrible. It needs to be addressed. Uh, 
you know, they have very progressive views on legislation that there should be law on domestic violence. For example, uh, Ministry of Labor, we met with Ministry of Labor at this quite a senior level before I started the research uh, just to, you know, tell them that we're working on this and we really wanted their input. And then after the report was, you know, finalized and they had a chance to look at it and they agreed with some of our findings, you know, including, you know, some aspects of... uh, of how shelters operate, the need for better cooperation between NGOs and governmental uh, groups, you know, locally. Like I said, the need for specific legislation, uh, introducing protection, additional protections for survivors. So, I mean, uh, again, Ministry of Interior, the actual Minister of Interior spoke against decriminalization and said publicly that, you know, in more than 70% of administrative cases of battery, when we're talking about domestic violence battery within family, courts impose fines, and uh, that does not correspond with punitive purpose of punishment. Uh, So he was basically saying that that this this new legislation and the penalties that it introduced, they... uh, uh, it does not serve as prevention for uh, further violence. And he also mentioned that it adds additional burden on the family, which was, again, a crucial point, because if an abuser gets a fine, then very often that fine comes out of a family budget, which is ridiculous. So, you know, there are a lot of supporters of domestic violence legislation. There are a lot of people in ministries, etc., who understand that things that need to be done, things that need to happen, for a situation to improve. I see the main obstacle to things improving, um, you know, our parliament. And it's a male-dominated parliament. In Russian parliament, in the state Duma, we have only 13% of women. The rest are men uh, in the lower chamber of parliament. And that parliament would have a very hard time adopting legislation, allowing, for instance, for protection orders, because that implies or could imply infringement of, you know, infringement on property rights, for instance, which is also a debate that's been going on in Ireland. But again, there are very clear kind of rebuffs that you can give, counter arguments that you can give to those fears, but it so far it hasn't we haven't succeeded and advocates and activists pushing for legislation haven't succeeded in in convincing our parliament that you know, things need to change. And, you know, as I'm saying that, I'm also completely aware of uh, the irony that in our male-dominated parliament, it was a group of women who pushed for decriminalization. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. Uh, that That's, yeah. I felt like when I was reading the report, I spent, like, some time going down maybe that, like, not very fruitful path of trying to speculate on why legislators would make those decisions and it's like what, do they just hate women or like what else is going on there it's like so hard to parse and maybe isn't even useful but um I, I wanted to talk about a little bit more about the what happens after um a survivor attempts to seek help so in the case where you know the police are called and they say okay the the injury is not severe enough even if it clearly is isn't severe enough uh, for a public prosecution to take place, um, but you can go through private prosecution. What is that process, and how does it differ from public prosecution? 
Sure. Uh, well, I can start by saying that the process of private prosecution for uh, survivors of domestic violence is incredibly unfair. And it basically shifts the burden entirely on the victim. It's a process that's been described to me uh, by survivors as hell from beginning to end. So after a woman gets turned away from by police, and police tell her that either her injuries are not severe enough, or this does not qualify as a criminal offense, uh, or it's a criminal offense, but it doesn't. It's not serious enough to to have a criminal investigation initiated, which also happens. Women are funneled uh, basically by the police to uh, private prosecution, which means that they take their case to a magistrate court judge themselves, and to do that, they have to. Uh, they basically have to put their case together themselves. They have to find witnesses. They have to, you know, uh, make sure that they have all their injuries documented properly, which is also a challenge in Russia procedurally uh, because of the fact that medical workers are not trained to do it right. And women most often simply don't have the knowledge to point out, you know, if she gets a, you know, at least a piece of paper from a medical worker listing her injuries, and it's not correct. Uh, it wasn't there are often mistakes. It's not documented right, and the court will simply, you know, destroy, destroy the whole case uh, because of, of a mistake made by a medical worker. So, if a woman does not have resources or understanding of how to put her case together herself, and she doesn't have the resources to hire a lawyer to help her, then uh, you know, nine times out of ten her case will be returned. Uh, it will not get to hearing. It will not get a hearing because of the mistakes that she will make along the way. Um, let's say she put her case together and was accepted by a magistrate court judge. And she has to attend court hearings, uh, which happen usually once, um, I think, like maybe once every two months. Or, no, sorry, twice a month, twice a month. And that can go on for up to a year. And, you know, women that I talk to, they, 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 they have uh, kids, they have to work, uh, they're already traumatized, they have all these relatives and friends pushing them to reconcile with the abuser, uh, they have to spend money uh, to hire a lawyer, or, you know, if they don't, like I said, their case will fall apart because of, you know, non-compliance with some legal requirement or other. And while all this is happening, the state gives uh, state-appointed free legal defense to her abuser. Yeah, what is that about? <laughs> Why? Well, because because it's part of the uh, it's part of our legislation. Because they're the defendant. Exactly, exactly. They're defendant in a private prosecution case, and they get a free a free state representation. Yes. Um, yeah, so I had a, for instance, a very uh, good example is this one woman that I uh, interviewed for the report. So she uh, and her husband were, you know, both very successful professionals living in Moscow. Um, that's actually another thing that was very striking to me is that the more kind of, um, you know, successful in whatever socially acceptable terms a woman is, the more, the higher, the, the, the better her education, the more money she makes, the more, sometimes more fearful she is of actually coming forward and talking about her, uh, you know, about facing violence at home. Uh, and she, yeah, very often that happens that uh, women like that don't, don't say anything. They're afraid to say anything. Anyway, so in this case, her husband assaulted her, uh, I think, 23 times over 10 years 
severely, like putting her in the hospital several times uh, while they were married. And you know, a lot of those times will actually happened while she was suing him for domestic violence after they were divorced. So basically, almost after, remember I mentioned this twice a month hearing, so almost after every hearing, he attacked her. And four times, he attacked her outside the courthouse. And no one would do anything to stop him because no such thing as protection order. And there's, you know, that, that because, the, like I said, the system is stacked against her. If a police officer would see it, they would keep on walking. Uh, very recently, there was a, a case an activist uh, talked about on her social media page, on her Facebook page. She, um, she saw somewhere in the center of Moscow uh, a man beating a woman at a, at a metro, in a metro, in a metro station. And it was late at night, and the police and the activist that, that uh, go witnessed that. And the police officer was walking by, and he approached and you know tried to inter- intervene. And the guy said, "No, no, that's my wife." And he showed him his ring on his finger. And the police officer was like, oh, "Okay, right on," and kind of kept on walking. So yeah, again, it's it's uh, legislation is one thing, and the public awareness, uh, the, the way that the system works is, is a whole other problem. So, yeah. And you have like, as Lily mentioned earlier, you have this very thorough list of recommendations, uh, in the report kind of broken down by each segment of the government. Um, you said that you showed the report to, uh, some people before it was published. I'm wondering, was there, like, was there a public response in Russia to the report? Did the government feel, like, pressured to respond publicly? Actually, there was, yes. Um, and it's, uh, you know, we had response more or less direct through, directly from the Kremlin, uh, which is pretty much unheard of uh, when you're a human rights activist or, you know, a human rights group working in Russia. Uh, because the Kremlin is always this, you know, impenetrable fortress and it doesn't lower itself to level of you know debate on human rights at least in my memory and i've been working in russia for nine years now so um we had a response from uh, dmitry peskov uh which is the kremlin spokesperson and mr peskov you know obviously was critical and he said that the report was not representative uh of russia which you know first of all was not claim that we ever made because all human rights watch reports are based on you know it's non-quantitative research it's not the methodology we use and secondly you know by criticizing us this way mr peskov basically you know he opened himself (laughs) and the russian government to return criticism because you know there's basically no available clear, consistent statistical data on domestic violence in Russia because there is no adequate legislation. So they accused us of something that we could in return accuse them of uh, and, you know, and they couldn't really back it up and we could because at least we had specific cases in our report and, you know, specific examples and, uh, you know, an indication that it most likely happens on a very large scale. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, quite interesting because to us it was a signal that you know um, it's a it's a, it's an issue that uh, they pay attention to and they realize that there is you know a certain amount of pressure, including international pressure, uh, to change things. Um, and 
hopefully, you know, hopefully it will, it will lead to something. It will lead to some changes. And there are a whole lot of uh, great, there, there's a number of great activists uh, in Russia who work, have been working on um, domestic violence and women's rights for many, many years. And they've been accused of being agents of the West and evil feminists and all kinds of things, but they continue to, to work. So hopefully sort of uh, together we'll be able to to change things at least a little bit. I mean there have to be at least some steps taken to change the situation because it cannot it cannot go on like this. That is the episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be sure to publish along with this episode some resources for for people seeking um, protection or ways to participate in helping survivors of domestic violence. Uh, we'll also link the report that Yulia and her team wrote um, or researched and wrote in, in the episode description, both in English and in Russian. And that was interesting that she wrote it in English. Did you notice that? Did you read the acknowledgments? Oh, I didn't notice that she wrote it in English. I yeah, read she wrote it in English and then somebody else translated it into Russian. Oh, I didn't read that far in the acknowledgments. Yeah. <laughs> I only read uh, the first part. As always, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Telegram at She's in Russia. Uh, sign up for our monthly image-based newsletter at she'sinrussia.com and become a patron. A patron saint at patreon.com slash she's in Russia. Um, our patron saint. Our patron saint, yeah. Um, what about Fortress Cross? I mean, it's on that other episode. We can, we can say it again. Um, if you missed it on the last episode, at the beginning of the episode, um, we're, we're selling off our remaining inventory from Fortichka, our fashion Russian fashion pop-up that happened in early December. Um, so if you missed that, like you don't live in New York or you didn't come out that weekend, uh, go ahead and look at our Instagram and, and we'll be putting up a, if it's not already up, we'll be putting up a link with all the leftover stuff. Sorry, excuse me, not leftover, remaining things that you can buy. Um, at Fortichka underscore. Yeah, F-O-R-T-O-C-H-K-A underscore okay cool all right see you next week the other thing that i didn't know was how often it is that physical abuse starts when the woman gets pregnant yeah what is that i think that's so weird fucked up underlying biological thing where you're like wires get crossed and you think that they're pregnant with somebody else's baby or something like that oh yeah and there's yeah exactly like there's like so much of the like abuse is like this weird paranoid guilt complex where like you're i mean in the stories that this report has where like it's like remember the one that was like this guy was beating this woman until she told the truth about how many people she had slept with or something God. and he's just like he just made it up it's just like he's having a paranoid attack psychos yeah, they're psychos, but, like, they're the product of their, like, of, they're, like, a really extreme version of a lot of people's values. I mean, it's yeah. really, like, that's the thing that's crazy about jealousy and, like, sort of normative values around monogamy is that, like, it's, like, totally normal to be, like, really, really rageful about non about, um like, breaking monogamy. And that's, like, normal. And that's, like, 
encourage because like the unit is the two of you and you should not be introducing foreign agents into it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. 